With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. Gators Breakdown, episode 146, is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter, at GatorDave underscore SCC. And joining me this episode of Gators Breakdown, co-host and founder of ReadAndReaction.com is Will Miles. You can find Will on Twitter at WillMilesSCC. Uh, Will, uh, had a great weekend this past weekend as the, uh, the 35th birthday was over the weekend. Hey man, I saw you out on the lanai having a grand old time, you know, <laughs> your wife posted all sorts of pictures that, you know, you gotta be careful about what goes up on Facebook, but it looked like everybody had a good time. So, uh, happy birthday, buddy. We, uh, we, uh, we need everybody from the show to give you a shout out to fill up, fill up your Twitter feed. Oh yeah, there we go. I got it. Yeah. Thanks for the people who already have, uh, as you mentioned, uh, my wife, yeah, did, uh, there wasn't a lot of action on Twitter for the birthday, but, uh, I guess when she tags me on Facebook, people get to see me flipping off of a big inflatable duck and all that good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those are the kinds of things you need to post on Twitter so that people will take you more seriously. That's really, (laughs) that's really the goal here, but nah, it sounds like you had a good time. It looked like a lovely place to have a, uh, to have a birthday party. It's just been thunderstorming up here, but uh, we we had a, (laughs) we had a day. It was 90 degrees on Saturday and then 60 on Sunday. So we went from uh, July to October in about a day. (laughs) So that's the kind of stuff we get here. But I had texted my mom and she told me it was the heat the heat index in Gainesville was 105 on Sunday. So yeah. I think I'll take 60, man. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it was hot over here. So it, it is starting to get, you know, past Memorial Day, it is uh, time to uh, get those uh, 90 degree days uh, here in Florida. So uh, we've got a lot to get to this episode. Uh, you know, of course, uh, not so much breaking news, but Florida got to commit uh, earlier today. But before we dive into that, remember you can find all your Gators Breakdown episodes on newsforjacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you will find all your Gators Breakdown episodes as well as articles from the News for Jack sports team. That's newsforjacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. Also, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube if you want the video version there. Follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and on Facebook at Gators Breakdown. And hey, when you use those services, please rate and review the show. Let Gator Nation know what they're getting with Gators Breakdown. And as I mentioned, Florida gained a commitment today from defensive tackle Jalen Humphrey, 6'3", 303 pounds. Some thought that he could even be a pretty good offensive guard out there, Will. Uh, According to 24-7 Sports, he's the 201st ranked player in the nation, 13th ranked defensive tackle in the nation. Uh, And he told rivals Chad Simmons, uh, quote, since I saw spring practice, watched the coach's coach, had that feeling at Florida, I've had them on top, said Humphreys. I knew going into the official visit I was going to commit. On Sunday afternoon, after a position meeting with Coach Grantham and Coach Sinceri, I went to Coach Dan Mullen's office. We had a talk. My mom talked to him, and eventually he said, are you ready to commit? And I said, yes, sir, I am ready. That is when I made my commitment to Florida, and it felt great. 
Florida has been my favorite team for a while, and they really made big strides with me since my first visit there. I just love Gator football and the coaches that are there. I am fully shutting my recruitment down. The University of Florida is my school. That is where I want to go. So, Will, with that, Florida's moved up to uh, 28th in the 24 uh, – moved, uh, moved up from 28th in the 24-7 recruiting rankings to 23rd. Still ranks as the 10th best class in the SEC heading into summer uh, with many targets waiting to make their decisions in the next couple months. Will, Florida got, gets their highest-ranked commit that Georgia, Alabama, Auburn, and LSU also wanted. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for a lot of different reasons. One is just because of his talent level. I mean, Humphreys is a really good player. But I think the other reason it's a big deal is that McIlwain had really struggled to bring in high-level talent on the defensive line and at linebacker. And if you look, that's an area where Florida has clearly emphasized under Mullen with Andrew Chatfield, David Reese, and Tyron Hopper at linebacker, and then Malik Langham and now Jalen Humphreys at defensive line. So bringing in those guys who who are high-level blue-chip guys in the front seven, I mean, we, we've talked about about before where high-ranking defensive lines, high-ranking linebackers is where you uh, is where you build top 10 defenses. And I think that's where Florida is headed, is, is building with those blue-chip guys. And I mean, hopefully, obviously, there's going to be 17 or 18 more blue-chips who come Florida's way before the end of the day. And maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, everybody's been saying, wait until the summer, then in June and July, we're going to see a bunch of guys commit. And I think that's true. I mean, I, th- I think we're going to see people... Uh, we're going to see some of those commits come in June and July. Hopefully a lot of those go Florida's way. And, and if they do, people will be happy with the class. Yeah, I mean, about the hunt freestyle, this guy can play anywhere in the defensive line, inside or outside. He's that versatile. Uh, and watching some uh, highlights that are, that are out there, you can see different types of plays being made. Uh, one play, he's bull rushing. Another play, he's using the speed to get around and an offensive lineman, or he's chasing down a play. So he, show, he shows a great motor. Um, I'd love for him to be that disruptive nose tackle uh, when he's lined up there. Then that position, along with the rush in, can completely control games uh, in the Todd Grantham defense. So uh, speaking of Grantham, you know, this is Grantham and South and Sari. Uh, these guys are doing a great job at selling what they want to do on defense to some big-time players. You know, along the defensive line, Will, you mentioned, you got blue chippers Andrew Chatfield, Malik Langham that they got last cycle, uh, and now adding another four-star in Jalen Humphreys, you know, there's a chance they can finish uh, with four-star Nathan Pickering, four-star Lord Summerall, and four-star Derek Hunter. And, Will, you've shown before just how important it is to be strong up front in the SEC. Yeah, I mean, when you look at top 10 defenses, they almost always have very strong defensive lines. And it's less important, really, to have the blue-chip quality guys on the offensive line than it is on the defensive line. Now, obviously, Alabama has both. But but if you're really building your team, I mean, people talk about building up front. And what they mean, at least for me, what they mean and what statistically it shows is that you need to build up front from a talent perspective on the defensive line. That that the the talent profiles coming in from the recruiting services really match up with the with the defensive line performance. So it's a great sign for Florida to be bringing in blue chip quality talent. It's a great sign to bring in somebody who's almost inside that top two hundred. Um, certainly, they need to add more people to the class, not just on the defensive line, but but just in general in in that high level talent. You mentioned some of those guys and. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see where the where the where the class stands when the smoke clears. I mean, I, I'm not worried that Florida's at 23rd at this point. Um, 
you know, the number doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me more is the average. So if you look at the actual 24-7 average and how does that compare, there are a lot of teams in front of Florida that have a lower overall average and they're just, they happen to be ranked higher because they have more total commits. And as Florida brings in more commits who are higher rated, they're going to, they're going to zoom past those guys. Now the concern is once you get up in the top tier, (laughs) you know, Georgia, Alabama, um, Ohio state, those sorts of teams, um, those teams have higher averages than Florida. And so, um, you know, if, if you think like I do that top five classes, even top three classes are necessary to compete for national championships, then you can get a little bit concerned. But if, you, if you're happy with a class in the seven to 10 range, this is a very solid step in that direction. And, uh, you know, I, I think anytime you can add high level talent to the defensive line, you're going to see um, it, it's a chance to get better up front. It's a chance to get better on the defense. And I think when we talked last week about the defensive back struggling a little bit for Florida, I mean, that was really tied to a front seven that limited what they could do. And so it's, it's an entire, you know, the defensive unit relies on the, just those defensive linemen to, to, to create havoc and, and help the guys on the backside. Yeah, you know, hopefully this is kind of going back to to the names that we know so well. You know, a Dominic Easley, a Sharif Floyd, a, a Dante Fowler. You know, hopefully with the names we've mentioned uh, that Florida brought in last year, the names that they're bringing in uh, this year, and and the targets that they're looking at. You know, remember those those names in, in recent Gator history. Uh, that you know that's the type of performance we come to expect at Florida uh, when we recruit high level defensive linemen. Uh, that come here to to Florida, and well, I, I didn't bring this up, though, but it, it was a, a popular topic throughout the day. Uh, Trey Sanders visited Alabama over the weekend and started getting uh, a few crystal balls towards uh, Alabama. Now, uh, you know, Florida seemed to be uh, in good shape; still may be in good shape uh, for Trey Sanders. You know, we know his brother Umstead Sanders is committed to Florida, and we're still waiting to see if he's going to be enrolling in in, in summer. Um, but well, I, through through message boards and, and social media, there, there's a there's a talk out there of the what what what's probably happening here is Alabama's offer also offering his brother Trey Sanders' brother Umstead Sanders to try and get uh, an inside track on uh, getting Trey. So, will I'll pose this question to you: Do you see it worth the scholarship of giving one to Umstead Sanders? for a better chance to get Trey Sanders. Well, Umstead Sanders isn't a bad player. I mean, he's a three-star ranked ranked player and and certainly I think is someone that a lot of people in the country would would love to have, a lot of teams would love to have. So that, I, this isn't a charity case. I mean, the guy's a very mm-hmm. good player. Um, you know, and it, and if you say, "Hey, I have to give the the three-star candidate a scholarship in order to get the five-star candidate." Well, you know, I mean, a lot of it depends on your need at the position. That's the one good thing I would say about Trey Sanders. Now, I never want to say that you don't want a five-star candidate. <laughs> but but the one good thing is, is if you really look at where Florida has a position of strength, it is at the running back position. And, you know, there, there are some things that you can nitpick about each of the guys who's back there, but I, I don't think at the end of the day, anyone is, is massively concerned about the depth at the running back position or the talent level at the running back position. And so, you know, Florida's going to have to, I mean, Florida's already made the decision because they offered, <laughs> they offered Umstead the, the scholarship. And so now it's just up to Trey to decide where he wants to go. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to begrudge any kid looking at his options. I'm not going to begrudge any kid um, considering Alabama. I would consider Alabama too if, if I were a recruit. And, you know, I'd probably consider a bunch of different places. And, and you got to go where you think you're going to get playing time. You got to think where you're going to develop as a player. You got to go where you think the system fits you. And you got to go where you think it's going to get you to the NFL. And those are sort of the things that, uh, 
that people are looking at. And if you look at the uh, story that came out about Ole Miss earlier in the week, sometimes you got to go where the uh, where where the vehicles and things like that are. So uh, <laughs> so anyway, I you know I, I think at the end of the day. Um, Florida has put themselves in a pretty good position for Trey Sanders. And if he decides to go elsewhere, that, that is a problem. I mean, you know, if, especially if Umstead decides to stay in Gainesville, that's a problem. But uh, yeah, I mean, if it's me, if I'm the coach, I'm, I'm offering both guys. Cause I think they're both good players. Yeah. You know, I think Florida's target that running back. I think all the eggs are in the basket of, of Trey Sanders. And I'm not so sure, you know, of course I'm not in, in the war room, the recruiting war room and, and see where it stacks up for running backs. But, you know, it seems it's all in on Trey Sanders and, you know, what happens after if he goes to Bama, what happens after that? So I also think that could play into this season a little bit, Will. If Malik Davis comes back, you know, close to fully healthy, you know, I've had this conversation a, a lot as well where people think he should just red shirt no matter what because of the depth that running back, you know, no use in, in rushing him back. I do agree there's no use in rushing him back, but if he's ready and, you know, if he's close to 100% and we saw the home run big-time threat he can be, then that gives you Scarlett, it gives you Pirine, it gives you Davis, it gives you Lemons. That's four running backs before you even get to freshman uh, Pierce and Clement. So I, I say if you do miss out on Trey Sanders and you're not too high on the other targets or the other targets don't come to Florida because you've put all these baskets in on Sanders, I think that pretty much shifts the focus that you pretty much have to redshirt Pierce and Clement to get that year back. You know, maybe. I, I, you and I have talked a lot about how you play the best guy. And so if Pierce and Clement are the best players and they, they pick up the pass protection schemes and, and they really are the best guys, well, they need to be back there. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't, and you can't tell people that you're going to make them compete and then hold them back in red shirt just because of your numbers. You play them when they're the best player. Now, if they're not going to win the job anyway, and they're going to be fifth or sixth on the depth chart and they're going to be, you know, playing on the kickoff return team or something like that, then yeah, maybe you take that into consideration and you redshirt somebody because, you know, you don't want to waste their, their year of eligibility on special teams. At the same time, we've heard a lot about Mullen putting starters on special teams and really emphasizing that as well. So those spaces may not be open either. Um, I mean, just like every coach in America, Mullen is going to have to manage his depth chart and manage his eligibility um, based on what he thinks he can get in recruiting and who he thinks is coming. Um, and that's sort of, I think, the advantage in having the, some of the early commits that some of these other programs have. You know, if you've got eight blue chip guys coming your way who are already on the board, who've already committed to your program, even if one or two of them flips, you still can plan for having those guys coming. And and Florida can't necessarily do that right now, at least not what's with what's publicly available. Now, you know, there, there, there could be guys who have silently committed and people who are going to commit on specific days for specific reasons that Florida has, has really high confidence that they're going to come. And, and in that case, then you can plan, but I mean, it's no different than any other coach. I mean, every other coach has to plan. Every other coach has to decide, is it worth going all in? on a running back i think this would be the year that you would go all in on a running back with all the running backs who are already in camp and so i don't know that it's necessarily a problem if you miss on miss on sanders other than the fact that you missed on a really high quality player yeah um yeah and before uh we get there uh to our next topic um i want to sit here and uh we'll uh, no, will we talked about it last week uh, of what would happen uh, later this summer. So uh, for our listeners, just wanted to give a heads up that coming up this summer, um, we'll, uh, before, you know, got time to hit the stands before we're in front of our TVs, before we're in the stands, uh, watching the Gators on the gridiron uh, and Gators Breakdown. We'll be here to get you ready for the season. This summer, we'll dive into the uh, 2018 schedule and break down the Gators opponents for the season. So the schedule sets up pretty nicely for Florida. 
to make a couple runs? And will the streak versus Kentucky stay alive? Uh, Mullen's first big road game at Tennessee. Can the Gators close the gap versus Georgia? And, of course, Mullen must change the, for- the Gators' fortunes at the end of the season versus FSU. So starting late July, listen to Gators Breakdown opponent previews on newsforjacks.com slash Gators Breakdown, iTunes or YouTube, whichever way you prefer, we have you covered. So, Will, I, I'm looking forward to, to getting that started later on. Hey, man, that's going to be fun. It's it's always good to um, – you know, it's one of those things where when it gets hot down there, you start waiting for the faults. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> thing. When, once you start talking about the season, once the magazines come out, all that sort of stuff, it's it's good to get uh, it's good to get prepared and, and really start looking at what's going to be coming up this season because up until this point, you really haven't taken – or I at least haven't really taken a look at, this, at the season in great detail. Haven't taken a look at the opposition to see who's coming back and who we're going to be competing against. So, you know, I've heard a lot about, hey, this might be the year to get Georgia because they've lost Chubb and Michelle. We'll certainly – we'll take a look at that and see whether that holds water along with some of the other uh, storylines for each of the teams as well. All right. So uh, what this episode was going to be about mostly before uh, we get, uh, the, the commitment that, that far, uh, of Humphreys that Florida got uh, this morning. Will, let's finally uh, get get down and dirty with some numbers. It, it's been a while since we've been heavy on numbers for an episode, uh, but that's what many expect here on Gators Breakdowns. Uh, there will be a lot from here on out, so hopefully we come across clear. <laughs> but these numbers uh, you could go back and listen to and also catch Will in, in your next article coming up. Yeah, I'm going to be – I've had some issues with my server, so I haven't been able to upload the the article. I'm probably not going to get it up tonight. I'll get it up tomorrow. But um, it's going to be detailing some of the metrics that I'm trying to come up with to describe um, quarterback play and, and how, to, how to look at quarterbacks who run and uh, and what Mullen coming to Florida will bring to Florida in that capacity. So, you know, if, if Felipe Franks can can run the ball effectively, what does that mean and those sorts of things? All right, and, and we'll, we'll let Will uh, dive into that a little bit more uh, going into the topic of the episode. And uh, so Bill Connolly of SB Nation has done a ton of research and where I first saw in numbers just how much it can help an offense uh, by being explosive. Uh, and quote here was, over time, I've come to realize that the sport comes down to five basic things, four of which you can mostly control. You make more, You make more big plays than your opponent. You stay on schedule, you tilt the field, you finish drives, and you fall on the ball. Explosiveness, efficiency, field position, finishing drives, and turnovers are the five factors to winning football games. And then he goes on to say, big plays are probably the single most important factor to winning football games. The team more adept at creating numbers advantages and getting a guy into open field or the team that can simply outman its opponent and win one-on-one battles will almost certainly generate more big plays and win more games. And I like how he goes on to explain it here because nothing is more demoralizing than giving up a 20-play, 80-yard, nine-minute drive. But unless you're a team like Navy, that, does, that that's not going to happen. Because defensive coaches also often teach their squads the concept of leverage and prevent the ball carrier from getting uh, the outside lane, steer him to the middle of the field, make a tackle, and live to play another down. It's the bend, don't break style of defenses that often works because you give the offenses, you know, you give the offense enough opportunities uh, that they eventually might make a, a drive killing mistake, especially at the collegiate level. So if you allow them 40 yards in one play, their likelihood of making a drive killing mistake plummets. So, you know, we, we saw when Mullen was here before, when Urban Meyer was hired, and I remember Urban Meyer specifically saying in, in, in his opening press conference how much he believed in big plays and how much they changed games, and he built his offense around it. And, and Dan Mullen is built from that same school of thought, and we have seen it 
way too much that the last two head coaches uh, at Florida of trying to use ball control offense that just isn't conducive to, to scoring points. Will Muschamp wanted to play in a, in a phone booth and pound teams, and that's hard to sustain and, and score a lot of points that way. McIlwain incorporated more pass, but the yards per attempt were pretty paltry. So now uh, I know ability comes into play here. It's easier said than done just to create big plays. But some offensive systems scheme for it, and I believe the type of spread Mullins run creates numbers advantages in the run game, and then the run game in turn sets up one-on-one matchups or even a wide open or even a wide open receiver down the field. So, Will, I wanted to use your, uh, or I wanted to use yards per play as a barometer for explosiveness, uh, and it's pretty simple that the higher yards per play, the more explosive an offense is. And I wanted to go back and look at how Mullen fared in his time at Florida and Mississippi State uh, and see how much success at this part of his offense uh, that Dan Mullen had. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's become pretty clear at this point, not not just with the with the research you cited, but really, if you look at anybody's if you look at the statistics, it becomes pretty clear that points being scored correlates really well with yards per play. If you look at the top 10 teams last year, Oklahoma, UCF, Memphis, Oklahoma State and Louisville are the top five teams in yards per play. And they were pretty explosive offenses, right? They were offenses that you know, you, nobody would mistake them for the Florida Gators offense from last year. That that is definitely for sure. And so Ohio State's in that list. Georgia's in that top ten. Arizona's at eleventh. Alabama's at thirteenth. Um, USC's at fifteenth. So really, when you when you start looking at that, and and yeah, there are a couple outliers. I mean, there are a couple of teams that can move the ball down the field, but at the end of the day, it tracks. And so um, big plays become important. Now the question becomes. Where do the big plays come from? How do you generate those plays? Just saying, I want to make big plays does not make big plays happen. <laughs> now, I, it's interesting. I mean, I wrote an article last year before the season started because Nussmeyer was uh, was talking about how they were working in the red zone, how they needed to be better in the red zone. And that just doesn't correlate with scoring. You don't need to be better in the red zone. You just need to get there more often. And, uh, and so – you know, the real test for Mullen this year is going to be, can he put the players last year that struggled to generate big plays into a position where they can generate them this year? And I think that's really where the rubber is going to meet the road in terms of whether the offense can improve. I mean, if you look at Franks, he averaged 6.4 yards per throw um, or yards per attempt last year. And and for a guy who's only completing 56, 57% of his passes, that's just not good enough because it's not very efficient. And it's not very productive. <laughs> and so you look at explosion and efficiency, which I think were the first two of the five that were listed yeah. as important there. And he wasn't very good on either of those. And so, um, you know, they're going to have to find a way to make um, Franks and quite honestly, make all the other guys on offense um, more explosive. And part of that is getting it to the right guy. Um, part of that is getting people out in space. And that is something that Mullen has excelled in and something that I've written about before in terms of his 2008 offense. And then when Adazio took over in 2009, some of the changes that he made and how that they actually averaged very similar yards per play, but the, the, uh, the theory behind what they were doing was different. And once the talent level went down a little bit, you could really see the drop off. Yep, so I wanted to go back and look at Mullen's time at Florida and Mullen's time at Mississippi State and, and, and kind of correlate where they were ranked in, in yards per play and kind of where it fit in, in the pantheon of, of rankings. Uh, so if you go back to 2004 first, we, you know, we'll, we'll set, the, set the table there. Last year under Ron Zook, Florida was 13th in uh, yards per play and 6.1 yards per play, so ranked 13th there. First year under Meyer and Mullen, 
fell all the way to 61st in yards per play with 5.2. 2006, and this was kind of surprising, a big jump and uh, all the way up to 18th in yards per play with 5.9 yards per play. So Will there, you know, we don't remember that offense being so explosive, but it was 18th in yards per play. And, and I think a lot of that had to do with the insertion of Percy Harvin into the offense. <laughs> I, would, I would expect so. I mean, this is one of those things where somebody like Jacob Copeland, um, somebody like Justin Watkins, if they put him on runner on, on end rounds, better use of Kadarius Tony, all of a sudden you can imagine that there would be more explosion. I mean, certainly every time Tony caught the ball, he was good for 10 yards. But if you get him in a position where he's got four or five blockers in front of him, you know, can he turn that into 80? And that's really the that's really the question is how do you turn ten into eighty? Um, there were a few plays a few years ago where Jordan Scarlett was just at the mm-hmm. tail end and would get tripped up, and I, I mean his longest run of the season was probably like 25, 26 yards, but there were a bunch where he was really close to just getting beyond that last cornerback or that last safety and sort of get him by the shoe. And you wonder whether the strength and conditioning is going to have an impact on that and whether he'll be able to whether he'll be able to get past that this year. Um, you know, the other thing is, is that in 2005, they did make some strategic adjustments in terms of bringing in Billy Lasko. I know Bill had mentioned on Twitter the idea that he sort of thought that that might be something that they start with, with one of the tight ends, that they put them back there sort of in that fullback role. Um, just because they don't have a quarterback who's like Tebow, they have a quarterback who's probably more like Chris Leak. And so that was the adjustment that they made back in 2005 um, after the bye week was, was changing up the offense a little bit strategically, bringing in a fullback. Um, whether they've learned from that, whether Mullen has learned from that experience in 2005 and will uh, and will embrace that change, we'll see. Because obviously there was a step back from from Zook to Meyer and Mullen, um, but at the same time, Zook's offense probably fit the personnel a yeah. little bit better than than they fit Mullen and Meyer's personnel. But then obviously you bring in Percy Harvin and Tim Tebow, and all of a sudden um, makes everybody look real good. Yep. So as I mentioned, so in 2006 they were 18th in the nation with 5.9 yards per play. 2007, of course, Tim Tebow's Heisman winning season, first in yards per play with 6.9 yards per play. That was a full yard jump from 2006 to 2007, from 5.9 yards per play to 6.9 yards per play. And in 2008, National Championship year, fell to seventh with 6.7 yards per play. Um, and I also wanted to point out there, Mississippi State, that was Sylvester Coons last year, the year before Dan Mullen gets there. Mississippi State was 117th in yards per play, and Dan Mullen leads to take that job. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it, it's pretty clear, I think, when you look at the Florida history, that the yards per play correlate with offense, correlate with explosive offense. And and this is why we harp on recruiting, right, is that the guys who came in um, are a big part of that. I mean, you know, I, I want to give Mullen as much credit as anybody for the offense getting better. But at the end of the day, when you got Percy Harvin, it's a whole lot easier to put up a bunch of yards and certainly somebody has to put them in the right position, but you know, it, it's always been hard to compare the 2008 offense versus the 2009 offense, mm-hmm. not only because you went from Mullen to Adazio, but because you went from a team that had Percy Harvin to a team that did not have Percy Harvin and was putting an Andre DeBose in that, in that area. And DeBose was an okay player, but he never panned out. Certainly was not the next Percy Harvin. No one's been the next Percy Harvin. And uh, you know, Harvin's just a special talent. You bring that kind of guy in, and all of a sudden, everybody looks good. So, um, you know, how much of it was Mullen? How much of it was the recruits? How much of it was that was just sort of a lightning in the bottle in terms of the guys that they brought in? Um, you know, those are the kinds of things we're going to find out. Yep. So in 2009, Will, you mentioned it. They, they didn't, it didn't change all that much for Florida. 
uh, as I mentioned, 2008, seventh in yards per play was 6.7. 2009, they were also seventh, but did drop just a hair to 6.5 yards per play. So not a huge drop there. And so, as I mentioned, in 2008 for Mississippi State, 117th in yards per play. Dan Mullen's first year, all the way up to 66th in yards per play with 5.3 there. So I find it very interesting that jump uh, made in the Mississippi State offense there. You know, it basically amounted to a yard and a half um, more per play. And, you know, we ranked in 76th in total offense in Dan Mullen's first year compared to 116th the year before. So also taking total offense into account was a huge jump as well because of this yard per play, Will. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. So for for Mullen in particular in, in 2009, so in 2008 under Kroom, Mississippi State at was a was ranked 111th in yards per rush and 111th in yards per pass. So it's not really a surprise that they were 116th <laughs> in points per game. Mullen came in and immediately they were 14th in yards per rush and they were 90th in yards per pass. So through the air, they didn't improve that much, but on the ground, they improved a ton. And really, he never had, the only year he had anything that was that you could even say was a little bit disappointing was 2015. They were 80th in yards per rush, but in that year they had Dak Prescott and they were 37th in yards per pass. And so, um, you know, I, I think when we look at what we might expect from the Florida offense this year, I think that first year Mississippi State is instructive. The idea that they were 14th in yards per rush and 90th in yards per pass—that's probably what you're looking at. Um, from a best case scenario. And people have been saying this for a while, right? That the running backs are going to carry the load. Now, I don't necessarily know that that's entirely true. I think some of the quarterbacks are going to have to carry that load on the, uh, on, on the running game in some capacity. And that's really where, where Mullen makes his, makes his hay there is if the quarterbacks can average four and a half, five yards a rush. Well, now all of a sudden, instead of, instead of averaging, averaging negative yards, like they have with, uh, with Del Rio or with Appleby or with, with Frank's last year, they're now averaging positive yards from the quarterback. And that really makes a difference for that average. All right. And now we'll go to Dan Mullen's tenure at Mississippi state here, uh, full board, uh, past his first season. We'll go to 2010, uh, improved a little bit in yards per play with 59th at 5.5 yards per play. Did take a dip in 2011, uh, down to 81st with five yards per play. And then a big jump again, 2012. I think that's when Tyler Russell come in, uh, took over there, uh, 47th in yards per play at 5.7. Kind of held steady in 2013, 45th in yards per play, 5.7 again. And then the big jump, of course, Dak Prescott comes in, takes over. 2014, Mississippi State, Mississippi State ranked 16th in yards per play at 6.4. 2015, 35th in yards per play with 5.9. Took a dip. 2016, Nick Fitzgerald takes over uh, there, 51st uh, in uh, yards per play at 5.7. And then last year, kind of surprising, 73rd in yards per play, 5.3. Uh, imagine there. Rush pretty high, probably not passing under Nick Fitzgerald. So going back, calculating it all, looking at it all, his UF average under Dan Mullen for uh, was 41.5. They were ranked 41.5 on average. His average for 2007 and 2008 for points uh, or yards per play was fourth. Uh, Mississippi State, his average was 52.5 uh, yards per play ranking there. And his average for the two big seasons there for 14 and 15 was 20 was 25th uh, in the in the in the nation there. So, well, I mean, it was a pretty 
pretty apparent just ha- how important uh, this this is. So in, in 2006, where the offense under Dan Mullen was 18th in yards per play with 5.9, that translated into 34th in points per game with 27.2. So, you know, kind of you, you can see the, the correlation here going down, especially to 2007, where Florida was first in yards per play with 6.9. It also translated into first in points per game with 42.5. 2008, 7th uh, in yards per play with 6.7. That amounted to 6th in points per game with 41.6. In his big years at Mississippi State, 2014, 16th in yards per play, translated to also 16th in the nation in points per game, 36.2. And in 2015, Dak Prescott's second year, 35th in yards per play, got into 43rd in the nation in points per game with 32.1. Yeah, well, so I mean, clearly there's a correlation. There's actually a correlation both ways. So the defense, you can actually do the exact same analysis and look at the yards per play, look at how, look at the explosive plays they're giving up, and 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 do the exact same sort of exercise. And and so you know, you look at that 2006 team, and uh, and the defense there was really really stingy. The 2008 team, the defense was really really stingy. The 2017, the defense really struggled. We talked about that last week. And so even though Tebow was winning the Heisman and the team was running up and down the field, so was Michigan in, in that bowl game. And, and and so you know they were losing games 42 to 35 and, and things like that. And that didn't happen in 2006. Didn't happen in 2008. You mentioned Fitzgerald, and so it is instructive, I think, to go back and look at Prescott. You know they were 14th in yards per pass in 2000. Four, or I'm sorry, 2014, they were 37th in yards per pass in 2015, and that dropped to 112th and 119th under Fitzgerald. Um, now they were they, it jumped from 24th and 80th in yards per rush to 10th and 23rd under Fitzgerald in 2016, 2017. And so really what you're seeing is that a lot of the value from Fitzgerald comes from running the ball. In fact, if, if you look at his actual numbers, his numbers are pretty comparable to Felipe Franks. Um, last year, he had a quarterback rating of 117.5, and Franks had a rating, I think, of 113.3. So, you know, from a from the standpoint of of performance through the air, Fitzgerald and Franks were almost the same player. Um, but the difference is, is that Fitzgerald last year ran for, you know, 980 <laughs> yards, and the year before ran for 1,500 yards, and that's obviously something that Franks hasn't done. Yeah, Will, so does it that in a way tie to the, the the metric that you're coming up with for your latest article? Yeah, so what I tried to do was figure out how do you quantify that? Because, I, you know, you look at somebody like, uh, like Lamar Jackson and go, okay, he's clearly more than just a quarterback who can throw. Now, I mean, he can throw, and, he's, and, he, and he put up very good throwing numbers last year, but he's more than just that, right? He provides a significant value in terms of how that he runs. Now, whether that translates to the NFL is a different is a different question and one that's actually going to be answered in the next few years, which should be fun. But at least as far as college is concerned, that running is a really valuable thing. And so what I did was I went back and I looked at all the quarterbacks in Division One, And I said, okay, what is their average yards per rush? And it ends up it's around 3.1. And then I said, okay, what's their average yards per attempt? And it's around 7.3, I think. And so if if Fitzgerald last year averaged 6.2 yards per attempt, well, he's below average in terms of throwing, right? You can say that definitively, that every time he drops back to pass, if you took the average Division One quarterback, Fitzgerald is going to complete a pass. It's about a yard, 1.1 yards less than the average um, 
the, the average quarterback. And Franks is the same way. He had 6.4 yards per attempt last year. So every time he dropped back, he was worse than the average in, in FBS. But then you say, okay, well, every time Fitzgerald ran the ball and he ran it 162 times, he averaged 6.1 yards per rush. And you compare that to other quarterbacks who averaged 3.1 yards per rush. So he was three yards better than average when he ran the ball compared to his contemporaries. And and this isn't necessarily just him ripping off a 15-yard run. Some of it is, okay, Fitzgerald gets pressured. He doesn't run out of bounds four yards behind the line of scrimmage. He throws the ball away. Well, that ends up being a net. That's a net zero on the throw but he didn't lose four yards on the rush. And so every time he touches the ball, how does that correlate? So what I did was I sort of tried to figure out how could you characterize this as a yards above replacement, right? So instead of saying, hey, this guy averages 6.2 yards per throw, he averages 6.1 yards per rush, how much better is he than average? And so if you look at Fitzgerald, you know, he was worse passing than the average quarterback, but he was better rushing. And when you take everything in aggregate, he ends up at what I'm saying, 0.32 yards above replacement. And what that correlates to is it predicts, based on some, some correlations I've done, it predicts that Mississippi State should have scored 32.2 points last year, and they scored 32.9. And then you look at Franks and his yards above replacement, because remember, he was the exact same passer as Fitzgerald. Few less passes, but from an average perspective, the exact same passer, but he ran 58 times and averaged 0.3 yards per rush. So he's three yards below average on the rushing scale. So he wound up minus 1.37 yards above replacement. And the the tool predicts that Florida would have scored 20.6 points in his games, and he scored 22.6. Though if we're if we're fair. Um, I did not subtract any of the pick sixes <laughs> that came back in games that he had played in. And so, uh, and, and so, you know, chances are it actually would have been closer to the 20.6 if I had taken that out. But what it is, it, it does then give us a way to say, okay, well, how does he get to, how does Florida get to 30 points, right? So if he puts up the exact same throwing season as last year, but he runs a hundred times for 500 yards in Mullen's offense. Now, is that reasonable? he seems to have some running ability. I don't think that that's necessarily an unreasonable thing. Well, that puts him at just below average. That puts him at minus 0.12. And so the tool predicts Florida would score 29.2 points per game. But if he can, if he can improve the same way Prescott did from year one to year two, and he can increase his average yards per attempt to 7.5, well, now all of a sudden he becomes above average if he, if he puts up those same 500 yards rushing, and that would correlate to 33 and a half points. So um, really, the tool is a way of trying to figure out how a quarterback um, impacts the scoring of the team. It's not a perfect correlation. Um, there are certainly outliers, but what I would say is if your quarterback ranks below average, there are only three cases in the entire power five that I looked at last year where the team scored more than 30 points and it was just barely over 30 points. <laughs> so, you know, there are certainly examples where quarterbacks really struggle and teams still score, but it's rare. And there are examples where quarterbacks really excel and they don't score, but that's also rare. For the most part, um, there's a direct correlation between quarterback play and how much they average compared to their contemporaries and how much an offense scores. Well, so what does it say for, I know you looked up a, a lot of quarterbacks here for this, but quarterbacks who, who throw a lot and, and solely just throw, you know, is, is, 
is that a better route to, to winning or is the dual threat as, as we hear uh, a lot you need to, for an offense to really take off in college football, you need a quarterback with legs as well. And the, the, the best type of offenses we see are, are quarterbacks that can do both. Is, is there a court? If the quarterback is known as a basically, I guess a pure drop back passer, you know, does your research show that dual threat is the best way to go or are pocket passers not necessarily a dying breed that we think they are? I think it shows that it depends on what kind of dual threat quarterback you have. So if you look at somebody like Baker Mayfield, who was not, and and also kind of shows that dual threat doesn't necessarily mean that you run for a thousand yards in a season. It means you don't take stupid sacks 20 yards behind the line of scrimmage on a regular basis. And that seems like an obvious thing to say, but the guy who turns the 15 yard loss into a zero yard you know, into an incomplete pass or can get back to the line of scrimmage has really done something valuable for his team. So if you look at last year, Baker Mayfield averaged 11 and a half yards per attempt. I don't want that guy running the ball for two reasons. One, I don't want him to get hurt, but two, he's averaging five yards more <laughs> than an average quarterback when he throws the ball. Like that's why Oklahoma had an explosive offense. It wasn't because Baker Mayfield ran the ball all the time. It was because he was an excellent, excellent thrower. But if you look at Lamar Jackson the year before, again, he averaged 8.7 yards per attempt, which is significantly above the average, but he also averaged six yards per rush. And I think last year he actually averaged like nine yards per rush. And so a lot of his value comes from being able to run the ball. And it's an additive thing, right? When you look at this, so Mariota the year before averaged 5.7 yards per rush, 10 yards per throw. So you look at the yards above replacement for these guys, it's 3.32 for Baker Mayfield, 1.93 for Lamar Jackson, and 2.60 for Marcus Mariota. But the next guy on that list for the Heisman Trophies is Jameis Winston, and he was at 2.49 and he ran for two and a half yards. So he was below average on the running side, but was able to make up for it on the passing side. So really, I think what it says is that if you're really, really terrible running the ball, like if you're a statue in the backfield, that has a negative impact on your team. And you're going to really have to be both efficient and um, and explosive when you throw the ball. Um, but if you look at somebody like Robert, Robert Griffin III, um, you know, averaged 10.7 yards per throw, but he only averaged 3.9 yards per rush. So we think of him as a dual threat quarterback, but he wasn't averaging much more than than typical. So, you know, they had, I mean, I think they made a decision in 2011 when he was a Heisman candidate to just say, hey, you know what, we're going <laughs> to, we're, we're going to protect him a little bit and not run him all the time because it's, it's just not worth it. So um, I, I don't know that there's an answer. I, I think, I think a guy's legs contribute to a team's ability to win. And I, and I don't think you want to take that away from him. Um, if you look at last year, so for, uh, you know, Lamar Jackson had the largest total yards above replacement because he played more than some other guys. Um, so he averaged 8.7 yards per attempt and 6.9 yards per rush as uh, yards above replacement was 2.18. Khalil Tate, though, at Arizona averaged 9.2 yards per rush. And, and Arizona's offense was explosive. And the reason it was explosive, so they averaged 40.4 points per game when Khalil Tate was a quarterback. And it's not a coincidence. <laughs> the reason they averaged that much is because Tate can run. And, and so having him as a dual-threat quarterback, having him driving the offense is something that, that, uh, that Arizona would be fools to take away. So what you were saying here, Will, if we, if we apply it to Florida, if – Whoever wins the starting quarterback job, if it's Felipe Franks or if it's Kyle Trask, and the passing is anywhere near similar to what 
they got last year from the quarterback position, then we better hope what Dan Mullen has been known for is to run the quarterback, the quarterback make some plays with his legs. If the passing is the same, then the running is going to have to be there for this offense to improve. They absolutely have to run the ball. And we were screaming for this last year. Yeah. I mean, we, we were, we were, we were looking at a clearly limited offense and saying you have to pull the ball and you have to run. All this is saying is that there's a statistical case that that is true. Now, you know, if you've got a quarterback who's back there chucking it and averaging 10 yards per attempt, and he's not really a running quarterback, well, you don't really want to expose him in that case because you, you know, there is an increased risk for injury. I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned Khalil Tate with well, the reason that I have to say in games he played in is because <laughs> there were games he didn't play in because he was injured. And, and we do need to take that into account. And you can say the same thing about Nick Fitzgerald last year, right? That, that he played, I think the first 10 games, but then had that gruesome ankle injury. And for as much as he runs the ball, I'm really surprised it took that long for him to get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you would have said the same thing about Tebow, right? Yeah, but Tebow right. got hurt hanging in the pocket and getting yeah. drilled by Kentucky. Yeah. It wasn't him running the ball. And and you sort of see that with running backs, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, when the running back is delivering the blow, a lot of times he's not the guy who gets hurt. I mean, you'll see shoulders and things like that, which is really, I think, I think the risk. But But, yeah, if you look at last year, so just from a yards above replacement, I looked at 55 quarterbacks. So I looked at quarterbacks who played the majority of the time for all of the power five teams last year. I'm um, just sort of come up with to see whether this made sense from a correlation perspective. Franks was 49th out of 55 quarterbacks in yards above replacement. So by a, by a rate statistic. So if you compare him um, to everyone else in terms of just a rate, like, so you're not, you're not adding it up. You're just saying, Hey, if I had a guy for one throw, who would I want? He ranked 49th out of the 55 guys in power five. And if you look at total, he ranked 45th out of the 55 quarterbacks. And that's really just because he played more because the guys who were bad got pulled. (laughs) So, so you look at, uh, you know, for the, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened, right? The guys who were bad just got pulled. Um, and, And so yeah, if if they're that bad throwing the ball, they're going to have to run it. And the good news is that we have a, we have an offensive coordinator who's going to do that, a head coach who's going to do that, and so we can expect that moving forward that Mullen's offense is going to provide some of that. Is it going to provide five yards a pop? Eh, you know, I, I don't know. And and a lot of that will depend on the offensive line too, right? Right, and that's it. You know, hopefully that this system for the offensive linemen is 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 better for them uh, as well. They're going to be asked to be doing a lot of more. A lot more pulling and, and using using speed a lot more, which is why I wish Florida could afford uh, to move our Ivy to guard because I think he'd be, you know, lights out there in this style of offense. But uh, he's probably just going to have to stay at tackle just because of the numbers there. Uh, but but yeah, you're right. It's going to be, uh, of course, how much these running backs play play into it as well, and how how the carries are split between a quarterback and the depth they have uh, at, at running back. And I, I'm really, that's another thing I'm interested to see. We're talking about explosiveness is just, where's it going to come from? Is it going to come from these, this stack running back uh, group? Is it going to come because the quarterback is now able to, to run the ball a little more and, and that's open because of these running backs, or is it because of this style of offense leaving one-on-one coverage because with, with these receivers or they're running the ball so well that you have a wide receiver wide open down the field and we keep talking about explosive, but I still think it starts if we want this offense to take off the way it's supposed to with these with the quarterback's legs. Yeah, all evidence indicates that it starts with the quarterback, and whether it's his arm or whether it's his legs, I'm not sure matters, other than 
we've sort of looked at the film and put together um, put together statistical cases that counting on Florida's quarterbacks to put up massive numbers through the air, at least in twenty in twenty eighteen, is probably wishful thinking. So you gotta you gotta say, okay, well, if that's the case, then then you know what's the next best thing? It's one of the reasons why I would advocate for Emory Jones to get in there very very early because he's the kind of guy who even if he struggles throwing the ball, again, if he puts up the exact same stats from a passing perspective as Frank's, but he's able to run the ball like Fitzgerald. Well, now you have Mississippi State's offense from last mm-hmm. year, and you're going to score 32 points per game, and and everybody's going to just laud Mullen for the job that he's done. Um, you know, now obviously turnovers start to play a role and all that sort of stuff, and and so you know that is not factored into this metric. Um, and, and so you know, if a guy throws 35 interceptions, <laughs> that that will that will impact it, right? I mean, this is this is a general metric. It's not something that's meant to be taken in isolation. But I do think it points out, you know, if you look at guys last year who were really efficient in limited time, so Jordan Tamu at Ole Miss, I'm a little bit scared of that guy. He put up a yards above replacement of 1.68 in his limited time. He averaged 9.7 yards per throw. Um, a lot of people are ready to displace Jalen Hurts at Alabama. He was really, really good. 1.45 yards per replacement um, at Alabama. And, I mean, you know, a lot of that was running the ball as well. And people, I think, get frustrated when he pulls the ball down and runs it after looking at one read or two reads. But he's averaging 5.6 yards per rush. So, to be honest, he should probably keep doing it. Um <laughs> You look at Jarrett Stidham, he was at 0.51 last year, but was significantly better at Baylor. I do wonder whether that's going to improve in year two in that offense. Um, I think there are a few people we don't necessarily need to be scared of. So you look at Jake Bentley, he was at minus 0.55, and he was at, like, I think, minus 0.6 the year before. So we talk about Muschamp and his ability to make quarterbacks better and those sorts of things, and there's no evidence that Bentley got better from year one to year two. In fact, I would I would suggest that he took a little bit of a step back. And so should we be afraid of that guy? Well, probably not. Um, Jake Fromm was at 1.07. I think everybody sort of you know recognizes that he played very well, but he averaged nine yards per attempt last year. Mm-hmm. He was really efficient, and he, and he had a really high completion percentage. He didn't run the ball very much and didn't run the ball very well, but certainly uh, – but certainly showed some <laughs> showed some signs that he's gonna he's gonna be a force to be reckoned with, and then Nick Starkle at Texas A and M, eight point seven yards per attempt there, and so he had a a yards above replacement of zero point eight six, and luckily Florida got Kellen Mond last year who was minus zero point seven four, because not only did he average six point one yards per attempt, but he only averaged three point eight yards per rush. So he's one of those guys that people look at and say, hey, he's a dual threat quarterback. He brings something with his legs. That's true. He wasn't truly terrible because he brought something with his legs, but it still wasn't good enough to offset for the issues that he had throwing the ball. Um, and, and so, you know, again, that, that I think sort of goes to Florida where, where really what you're looking for is can we get average production through the air or maybe a little bit below average production through the air from somebody like Emory Jones and then make up for it on the ground. Well, there you go. That's kind of where I was going to ask you before we, before we went off air. How, how, how does this fit for every Emory Jones uh, in your eyes? And, and you're right. It's, be a little close to what you might get from Felipe Franks or Kyle Trask in the, through the air, but of course, being able to make up that difference uh, with his legs, whether it be escaping the pocket, and much like you were talking about Jalen Hurts, that's what it is. He drops back because it's a one or two read, and he looks to run. And as a true freshman, that's kind of the game I would expect from him. 
and not fully knowing the offense, not really knowing what it takes to play in SEC stadiums on the road and get a little, get a little jittery. Hey, look, it happens with true freshmen. Uh, you know, Jake Fromm and what he did, that's not typical. That's an outlier for how true, true freshmen play. Uh, but you know, it, it could, but a lot of this also is when we look at average, and I remember you saying this about Tebow one time, that you know, his average yards per run, but it's also according to how you use him. And when you're in the goal line situation, you only have a yard or two yards a game, and you're doing that time and time again, or you're converting the, the third and short and the fourth and short yards per carry, that number gets a little skewed a little bit because you're playing within the game itself and, and, and trying to help the offense overall. Yeah, but you could make that same argument about the yards per play overall, right? Yeah, the, exactly. the, the yards per play overall, certainly if, if you hit an explosive play from the 15-yard line, you only get 15 yards for <laughs> yeah. it. Whereas if you hit it from your own 15-yard line, you get 85 yards for it. But over the course of the season, those things are going to start right. to even out. So if your quarterback is explosive running the ball, you're going to see it in that statistic. Even if he has a couple of one-yard runs at the line of scrimmage, even if you're plowing him in and he, you know, he's getting stopped for a half yard, those sorts of things. I think when it goes to the Florida offense, it suggests that the dual quarterback system might be the way they want to go, particularly if they decide that Kyle Trask is the best option through the air. If they decide Trask needs to be the starter because of his grasp of the offense, well, that means that either Emory Jones or Kadarius Tony needs to have a package where there is the danger to throw the ball. So Jones, we don't have any specific stats on other than his high school stats, but clearly, um, you know, he, he, he ran the ball quite a bit in high school. And you look at Tony last year, he ran the ball 14 times for 120 yards. So he averaged 8.6 yards per rush. And let's not kid ourselves. The defense knew he was running the ball every time he got a snap. So if you can start to put some wrinkles in there where he throws the ball, um, you know, all of a sudden now you've got explosive plays coming from the quarterback position, but it's not necessarily the guy you have back there starting all the time. I mean, you know, and you can do things like motion Trask or Franks or whoever out to the wide receiver, bring Tony into the Wildcat. Okay, yeah, he's run the ball until you get into a critical situation. And Florida did that with Tebow back in 2006, right? So the jump pass um, sort of unveiling him as a, as a weapon throwing the ball against LSU. That's really the first time I can remember him actively throwing the ball and not just plowing into the line of scrimmage like he did against Tennessee that year. Um, and, and so I think that's what you're going to probably see. To say, hey, Emory Jones is going to start as a true freshman doesn't really fit with what Mullen has done in the past. doesn't mean he won't do it, but it hasn't really fit with what he's done in the past. But I, don't, but I do think that if they're going to start somebody like Kyle Trask, he either has to be so much better than – than the other guys he's competing with throwing the ball that he offsets the benefits they give running the ball, or they're going to have to bring somebody else back there to run the ball in that position from time to time. Be interested to see how it plays out, Will, and uh, also be interested to see, uh, I know you talked about when you release your article that you might put a calculator or some sort of thing in there where, where, where fans can play with the stats themselves. Yeah, well, so it's not perfect yet, but one of the things I want, you know, there's there's some things with completion percentage that I want to build into it and all sorts of other things. But but during the year, I'm going to plan on having a page on the website where people can come and see where the quarterbacks stand. You know, maybe it'll be the Power Five, maybe it'll just be the SEC. But hey, where do these guys stand? So that when you say, hey, Franks isn't playing well, is that true? Is he better than last year? All those sorts of things. And, and sort of trying to get an assessment of, how much better than average or worse than average those guys are compared to what's going on. Now, um, 
and and then obviously if you want to see hey what happens if if somebody does this you know if, if they average mm-hmm. eight yards a pass and and three yards a run for this many passes and this many runs what does that equal to you can take a look at that too so we'll be putting we'll be putting a calculator up on the site so people can people can see where that stands but uh, you know this this isn't just like anything it's not a metric that you would use um, to solely isolate a quarterback's performance and say this is definitive that this guy's better than this guy but you see a guy sitting at negative one point three and you see a guy sitting at at plus three point three and you can pretty definitively say <laughs> that 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 one guy's elite and one guy is not and then the question is if you want to see if you know when we start talking about development right how do you measure quarterback development well this is one way to do that and it's not just that franks gets better throwing the ball it's does he get better rushing the ball as well uh, making those sorts of decisions to turn that four yard loss into an incompletion or a three yard gain well, we did it again. <laughs> hey, man, it's it's an hour no matter what with me, buddy. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a lot of numbers, but like I said, hopefully a lot of people get it out of it. And I know uh, a lot of feedback. That's what people like about this podcast. So uh, we got back to to heavy numbers uh, this episode, and uh, I really enjoyed it and and the different things uh, we threw out there this time. Yeah, man, I, I just don't want to allow the coaches to throw out there, oh, we're working in the red zone again. It's like, oh. <laughs> No, no, don't work in the red zone. Don't do it. <laughs> and, yeah, it's funny because, I mean, obviously when you get, it's frustrating when you get stopped on third down and have to kick a field goal. It's just not very important. Right. And, that was and, another and, thing I read in, in, in the Bill Connolly stuff or field goals are, are basically a waste. Yeah. Brian Burke is the guy you want to read. Um, if, if you're interested in strategy in terms of how you want to go, when you want to go for it and when you don't. And, uh, you know, I, I was a big proponent of McElwain going for it a lot in 2015 and 2016. He actually stopped doing it in 2017. I don't think it's a coincidence that they, uh, that they lost some of those close games last year. He just stopped optimizing sort of the, the, um, the chances for the offense to win. Um, now, certainly having the defense that he had last year instead of the one he had the first two years made a difference but uh but yeah if anybody if anybody's curious about this stuff i can shoot some stuff your way and uh and let you know what to look for because uh field goals oftentimes are a waste when you get down the red zone that is true all righty that's will miles you can find him on twitter at will miles sec and his work at read and i'm your host of gators breakdown david waters you can find me on twitter at gator underscore sec Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.